name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, I remember when I was coming to the end of my grad school program, I decided to take my board exam a little early, and uh, it wasn't the brightest idea, but uh, I, I just wanted to kind of get it over with and uh, graduate without anything else on my plate, but usually what everyone does is take a few months to study for the board exam after the graduation already happens. Um, but because I uh, like to, you know, complicate things, <laughs> I figured it would be a little bit easier to do that. And I pushed myself really hard the last few months of my grad program. And I started studying uh, about six months or so before my graduation. And I scheduled my board exam to be just a week before my actual graduation date. Um, but I was only one of like three or four people that did that out of my entire graduating class. Everybody else scheduled their exam a few months after the program ended. In any case, though, I remember studying hard and it was a very stressful process. I went to take the exam and... I'm telling you, like, I walked out of that exam like I felt like I just got hit by a train. <laughs> and after like four or five hours of sitting there and thinking about the right answers, uh, all I could think about after I finished was, you know, I, I, I definitely bombed that test. That was the biggest, most epic fail in the world. And not only that, my family's going to be coming from California to Miami and we're going to celebrate my graduation with a big damper on the whole event because now I feel like I just failed this exam and it just crushed my spirit. And I remember um, during that period, uh, they, they tell you that typically you'll get your exam score back within about a week or so, which was right about the same time that my graduation day would be. So I had to wait about a week. Now, for most people, waiting a week for something isn't a big deal, right? But for me, I'm telling you that week was like the longest week of my entire life. I had all my family coming. I had two vacations, like two big vacations. I was going to Europe and I was going to uh, this uh, Caribbean cruise or whatever. And I had so much fun stuff planned after, like finally, like years of hard work in grad school, I'm going to get to celebrate. And I was looking forward to that. But now all I could think about is there's just going to be a big dark cloud over these events because I feel like I just failed my exam. And I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be ashamed when my family's coming and all my classmates are celebrating and they know that I just failed my exam. Now, to make a long story short, by God's grace, I actually passed. I, I don't know how, this is another miracle. But I can just remember how difficult that waiting period was. Every day I would log in and check. And I don't know why, like I was checking from the very next day, even though I know it was going to take a week, but like something inside me was just so anxious and it was very difficult to wait. 
Now, during this period, as we transition from the Ascension to Pentecost, we have a very similar situation. We have the Apostles and Mary, everyone that was following Christ, literally sitting, waiting, right? And the disciples were lost. They were confused. I mean, they had no idea what was going on from the very next day after Christ is crucified. You see that uh, Luke and Cleopas wander off and they kind of throw their hands up. Oh, well, we thought this was the Christ. Uh, the other disciples returned back to their fishing. And from the, the beginning of this 50-day period, the beginning of the Pentecostal period, we know that the disciples were totally confused. But at the ascension, Christ tells them, look, stay put. He says, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise from on high. And they didn't even know what that meant either. Even if you look at the first chapter of Acts, they ask him, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Like they're totally oblivious. They have no idea what's going on. But one thing they do know is that they got to just sit there and wait. They have to wait for the promise of the Father. They probably don't even know what that actually means. Imagine what this must have felt for them. And even if we don't go to the extent of putting ourselves in their shoes, I'm sure we can all look back to situations where we're waiting. And even if you, 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 you look at our situation now, you probably don't even have to look too far back. In the present moment, we're all waiting for things to turn around. We're waiting for... Our church is to open. We're waiting for our lives to get back up on their feet, for our, our jobs, our families, and our homes to have some stability. So it's very difficult. It's very stressful. We know that the disciples were in this very same situation. And this is what this specific period is all about. But despite their confusion and ignorance and doubts and worries, Despite all of that, think about what the disciples were actually doing. We know that they were waiting, but were they just sitting around like twirling their thumbs all stressed out? Of course not, right? We know that they weren't just sitting there. In Acts chapter 1, we find that when they had returned, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So they weren't just sitting there idly. They were praying. They were supplicating. There was something active happening. Right? And you can find a very beautiful link between the, the, the beginning of the apostles' ministry, because this is essentially what's going to initiate their evangelism, and the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? Because now the disciples are going to be sent out into the world to, to preach, to be servants, right? And just as Christ started His ministry 
to go and preach and minister and serve. He wanted them to start in the very same way. We know that Christ went straight to the wilderness to fast and to pray before He revealed one single sign or wonder, before He did any miracles, before He even spoke about the kingdom of God, He went to fast and pray. And that's essentially what served as a foundation for everything else He did. For the disciples, God wanted them to follow the exact same path. He wanted them to start the very same way. So, we see here that this period is about one thing. It's about waiting and prayer. This period is about waiting and prayer. So we have to remember that that prayer is the very core. Nothing is more important during our tribulations while we wait on the Lord than that. Nothing is, is more important. Nothing is more significant. St. Seraphim of Sarov says, Of course, every good deed done for Christ's sake gives us the grace of the Spirit. But by prayer, but prayer gives it to us most of all. So we know that they were, they were anticipating the coming of the Spirit, right? He says, wait for the promise of the Father, right? And they could have been doing anything else to prepare for the coming of of the Spirit or the promise of the Father. But what they were doing, more so than anything else, was prayer. Why? Because it is prayer that gives us the Spirit more powerfully than anything else. Nothing gives us the grace of the Spirit more efficiently than than prayer. So, if we say that prayer is the most important, then we have to work and persevere in prayer, right? So this tells us that waiting is not a passive or idle concept. And a lot of times we, we, we think of this idea of waiting as just something passive. Maybe we just belittle it because, you know, sitting around is like a static position, right? But, they were persevering in prayer. They were working because prayer is work. If you think of uh, what Christ actually told the apostles whenever He uh, appeared to them, He said, receive the Holy Spirit. The word receive isn't just something that you think of in the sense of something falling into your hands. The word in Greek is levate. Levate or receive. Technically, if you were to translate that in a literal sense, It's to actively take. It's not just to receive in the sense of something falling into your hands. Right? If you think of sports, for example, like uh, in in football, a wide receiver runs sometimes away from the quarterback, the person who's throwing him the ball. And he knows that the quarterback is going to throw him the ball and the ball is just going to fall into his hands. He's going to receive it in that sense. It's almost like there's a little passive notion to it but if if you look at the best wide receivers are the ones that actually reach out for the ball the ones that go and take it and this concept is a little bit more evident in soccer too because in soccer whenever somebody passes you the ball you always have to run to the ball even if 
You have to run away from the goal, right? You always run to the ball. So we think of receiving, especially in our spiritual life, as an act of taking. We think of something that requires work, something that we have to reach out and take. It's active. So this period, the waiting period, the prayer period, is a prayer of actively seeking to be filled by the Spirit of God. The Gospel passage today directs our mind to this very same principle. We need to pray. Christ says, ask and you will receive. Right? This is the very first part of the passage that we read today. But He doesn't just stop there, right? He explains that there's a way that we should ask. Right? He explains how exactly we should pray. So he says, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Again, to ask in His name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So we see that He doesn't just say to ask. He says, Ask in my name, right? But what does that really mean? Do we just conclude every prayer with, in Jesus' name we pray, amen? You know, a lot of times um, we'll just hear this conclusion just tagged on to the end of every prayer. And a lot of times we think, okay, well, we prayed in his name because we said what was on our mind and then we just tagged on the name of Jesus to the end of the prayer and boom, voila. The prayer is in His name, therefore we did it as Christ instructed us to do it and we will receive. Of course, that's not the case. We have to think about what it really means to pray in His name. The concept of praying in His name is to identify with what relates to His name. Right? Because in, 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 in the culture that we find the Scriptures... And especially uh, if we look at this in, in, in a more fundamental sense, we see this concept in every society, in every generation, that a name is more than just a title, right? So not just in the context of the Greco-Roman culture, but in our life today, we know that the name that we carry is what we identify with, is what relates to us, Right? So Christ is telling us to ask for what identifies with His name, what identifies with His character, His qualities. So if we ask anything that identifies with His name, we will receive it. If we ask for anything that identifies with His will, if anything that identifies with His desires, and we know what God desires. We know the, the, the will of God. The will of God is to be righteous, to be holy to love, if we're asking for virtues, for things that coincide with the will of God, which isn't as mysterious as we make it out to be sometimes, then that's what we will receive. But again, it's not just, oh, we tag a name to a prayer and then we get what we ask for. St. Ambrose of Optina says, Seek only the mercy and will of God. 
Whether you're in church or outside of church, walking, sitting, or lying down, pray, Lord have mercy, however you think best, however you will. Right? So, we pray in a sense of seeking God's will. Right? This is how the church and the fathers have taught us to pray throughout all the ages. Abu Makarius was asked, how should one pray? So the old man said, there's no need at all to make long discourses. It's enough to stretch out one's hand and say, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. As you will and as you know, have mercy. And if the conflict grows fiercer, say, Lord, help. He knows very well what we need and he shows us his mercy. Right? So we ought to pray for his will. We ought to seek what pleases him. And we got to be honest about that. This is a concept that we've heard so many times, but we really do need to step back and, and think about whether my prayers have been selfish, whether my prayers have been offered on my own terms. I'm just praying for what satisfies me, what I'm selfishly seeking. Maybe there's a little bit of that selfish ambition that's projected out into my prayers, and I got to be careful with that. So again, we got to pray for His will. We got to pray in His name and what identifies with His qualities and His desires and what pleases Him and what will ultimately glorify Him and allow us to represent His name. Okay, so once we do that, what's next? We pray, and then what? Well, like the disciples were doing, we wait, right? But again, this isn't a passive process. Waiting for God is, is active. Waiting on God is, is an act of hope and faith, right? So, if you're not hopeful and faithful, then waiting on God is not only passive and idle, but it becomes torturous. Okay? There has to be hope and faith that drives the action of waiting. Bede relates this in a very beautiful example. So he says, The certainty of our hope is prefigured by the egg. No offspring is yet discernible in the egg, but the birth of the bird is to come uh, but the birth of the bird to come is hoped for. The faithful do not yet look upon the glory of the fatherland on high in which they believe at the present time, but they await its coming in hope. Right? So, in a very simple analogy, you see that the bird gives birth to an egg, it lays the egg, but you don't really see the life that is to come yet. Right, it's hidden, right? But there's a hope because you know something will hatch from that egg. You know that there is a life that will come, and it's built on your hope and your faith, right? And that's what ought to drive our prayers, that's what ought to drive our patience and this whole concept of waiting. We ought to remember that. We're, we're commanded to wait on God. We're commanded to have that level of faith, to have that level of hope, 
And we, we ought to do that simply because we know that He is good. Not just because of some optimism that we project into, oh, hopefully I will get this or I will get that. Hopefully this will change or that will change. We know that God is good and that's why we wait. And that's why the scripture tells us, wait on the Lord, be of good courage and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say in the Lord. From Psalms 27, 14. So if we apply this concept, then... This waiting period is not a period of anxiety. This waiting period is not a period of stress, but a period of hope and faith. Father Lawrence Farley says, It's because of the nature of our salvation as the hope of future glory that we must wait. Right? So our nature is a matter of hope, hope for the future glory, and therefore we must wait. This perseverance implies perseverance in the midst of suffering. It's not just a passive and easy waiting, like marking time in a waiting room. Rather, it's the active and difficult waiting that comes with the endurance of suffering. It's the waiting of the arena, of the prison cell, of exile. Suffering will try to turn us away from Christ and discourage us. It will attempt to drive us back to the world and to the midst of the mind of the flesh, depriving us of our final sonship. But we're to resist that discouragement. We're to persevere and not give up our hope of glory. If we look at all of the saints, they modeled this in the best way possible. I can't think of one saint that didn't have to practice this virtue of patience and perseverance and waiting on God with, with hope and faith. Just, um, just think about people like Joseph, you know, and, and how he was tossed around left and right, betrayed by his brothers and then sold and then imprisoned. And think about what was going through his mind, Right? Day after day, he's suffering. And what's fueling his patience? It's that hope, right? It's, it's the promise of the Father. And that promise should be sufficient for us to maintain our faith, to maintain our hope. Joseph came to situations where he could have said, I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting. I had... These dreams where God revealed something to me. I did nothing wrong. I've been faithful. I'm betrayed by my master's wife. I'm now imprisoned. I've been faithful in prison. And then day after day, nothing is changing. And, and that's where it's so easy to give up hope. It's so easy to say, I'm done waiting. I give up. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. And there's no reason for me to even bother anymore. Another person that comes to mind is St. Monica. And I think this is probably a little bit more relatable because this is a more personal example where St. Monica saw her son away from God and she saw how distant he was. She saw him suffering because she knew that sin 
had a grasp on him. She knew that he was suffering and that just tore her apart. And, you know, right now we're experiencing a similar situation. We see the world tearing itself apart with the racism and the discrimination and the injustice. And that breaks our heart and we're waiting for God to act, right? We're waiting for justice. We're praying and we're putting our hope in Him. And sometimes we don't see a change. For St. Monica, she saw her son in that predicament for 30 years. For 30 years. And day after day after day after day, she is weeping for her son. Until St. Ambrose comes and tells her that the tears of this of such a mother would never be forgotten in the eyes of God. And it was because of her perseverance, her patience, waiting on God, that her son not only changed, but became a, a wonderful saint. One that has taught us so many beautiful things about Christianity. And... She didn't accomplish her goal by going out and debating with him or fighting with the people that were negatively influencing him. She put her trust in God, waiting, praying, and hoping. A lot of times we think that, okay, that's fine. These concepts are great and some people wait and they hope, but... What's God doing? Why is He dragging this out? And one of the first stories that comes to mind when when I think of this struggle is whenever Christ heard about the sickness of Lazarus. He knew that Lazarus was at the brink of death. Right? He was terminally ill. So, Scripture tells us something so strange and ironic in John 11 verse 6 so when he heard that he was sick he stayed two more days in the place where he was and that's how we feel like sometimes like God I'm telling you that my family is sick and you're waiting longer I'm telling you that I'm suffering and you're delaying how But nobody knew that there was a greater glory coming from his delay. And sometimes we just don't see it because of our limitations. But that's why this whole chapter is about one thing. The whole chapter of John 11 is about faith in the resurrection. It's about faith in God's ability to accomplish the impossible. And that's why he says, if you would believe, you will see the glory of God. Right? And, and that faith should not depend on what we see and, and our timeline or what we expect. St. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. So we, we may not see an end in sight. And no matter what happens in the world, I don't see the law getting it right anytime soon. I don't see 
persecution disappearing, uh, the, the, the martyrdom in our church has existed from the first generation until today. And you see everything in the news happening. What we need to do is not just put our hope in society and in men, but in God. And we wait on God. We wait in the Spirit to come and change our hearts. We wait for the Spirit to transform us. That's what we wait for. That's what Pentecost is all about. We wait for a life-giving transformation. And so, if we keep that in mind, and we keep our waiting periods hopeful, faithful, we will never lose courage. We will never be dismayed. And God's name will be glorified throughout every tribulation, throughout every trial, no matter how long we wait, we know that God is faithful. Whether things change or not, we know that in our hearts, God is dwelling and our own hearts are changing. Unto God is due all glory forever and ever. Amen.